Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister in the United Kingdom, and one day she took a trip to a retirement community. And she started shaking hands with all of the residents in the community and having little conversations with them and was having a good time, and they were enjoying meeting their Prime Minister. And then she came across a lady who didn't seem to recognize who Thatcher was. It's a little bit awkward, and so Thatcher looked at the woman and said, do you know who I am? And the woman responded and said to Thatcher, no, but if you ask one of the nurses, they usually do. <laughs> so my question for you is, do you know who you are? We've been talking about that in our January series when we looked at the whole issue of identity. Who are we? What does it mean to be human? And we explored some of the ways that the world tries to answer that question for us. And then we looked at how God answers the question for us. We discovered that we are all very unique. Whether we believe in God or not, we've all been created in the image of God. But that image has been fractured. It's been damaged by sin. We are all sinners, and we know that to be true about ourselves just by our own thinking and by our own actions. And so the question we raised was, how do we get our identity restored? And we found out that in order to have that restored, we need to be born again. And in being born again, we receive and realize what our true identity is. But we still have this struggle in our life called desires. And that's why we created this two-message addendum that we started last weekend to our series Identity called Dealing with Desires. Because we all struggle with desires. And our desires are like wild horses, if you will, that tend to drag us in all kinds of different directions. And when we chase our desires, whether we realize it or not, we're looking for identity. And so the world says, find your identity in your sexuality or find your identity in your job or find your identity in popularity or in sports or looks or even religion. And so we go, we go searching for all those ways instead of realizing that our identity and our desires can all be met in God. And so last weekend we said, how do we deal with those desires in our life? Because just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you don't sin anymore. You still have those tendencies. Those desires still come up. Temptation still sneaks up on you. And we looked at Romans chapter 7, which is kind of like Paul's little autobiography when he tells us about his own Jekyll and Hyde, his own spiritual struggles both before he became a believer, a follower of Christ, and even afterwards. In fact, he ends Romans chapter 7 saying, I'm really a miserable person because I don't do the things I know I should do, and I do the things I know I shouldn't do, and I do, do, don't do. And remember how confusing that was if you were with me? We kind of broke it up, and I, and I basically chartered it out for us. So I thought, to kind of get us back on the same page again to hear what Paul was saying about us, we'd redraw the, the little diagram. So if you want to draw with Dale, you can get your pen or markers out. We'll do that right now, okay? So uh, let's get started here, and let me kind of draw out what uh, I believe we heard Paul saying in that passage of Scripture. And we're going to start with God, of course. Oops, I got to use a different color here. And so we'll start with God. God created everything. Then draw a picture of yourself, but be nice to yourself, all right? 
And before you and I came to faith, right, we, and before humankind rebelled against God, there was a choice. Either obey and listen to what God said, follow him, or listen to the tempter and give in to temptation. We said in the world that we live in now, there is this environment around us that just screams at us and yells at us, follow your desires, meet your needs, come meet your needs here or there or this way or that way. And because after the garden and man's rebellion against God, we all have a sinful nature, we're all drawn to do wrong things. And no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, no matter how hard we want to try to keep the law, the truth is that sin uses the law to condemn us because it reminds us of how unholy we are. It's like driving down the road. If there's no speed sign posted, then I guess you can go as fast as you want. But as soon as you see 60, 65, 70, 55, 45, whatever it is, the law now tells you that over that you're guilty. And so Paul said this was the conundrum he found himself in before he became a Christian in which each of us find ourselves in. We do what's wrong instead of doing what's right. And the only way God can accept us is we would have to never do anything wrong. We'd have to be perfect. And there's no way that we can settle this issue. So what God does is God comes along and he does something pretty special for each of us. God sends his son. So imagine this is Jesus. And Jesus comes to this earth, and he's also here between the law and temptation. Remember how Satan tempted him for 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness, and at other times as well, trying to play on Jesus' hunger and thirst and suffering and saying there's a way out of this. Just use your will. Just use your power to please yourself and to please me, and everything will be okay. Because if the Father really loved you, he wouldn't let you be going through all of this. But thank God Jesus chose to be obedient to his Father. He did not cave into temptation and all the voices screaming at him. And as a result of that, Jesus ends up being crucified on a cross. And on that cross, he is crucified there for you and for me. Right now, what's interesting is not only is he crucified on the cross, but Paul tells us when Christ was crucified, I was crucified with him. Which makes sense now of another verse of scripture found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, My old self has been, past tense, crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Why? Because we died with Christ. So I, I'm alive, feel my pulse. Yes, I know, but. God treats you and me as though, as though we did die with Christ. Christ becomes our substitute. But Christ lives in me now, he says. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. And this is, this is so important, that phrase, right? I live in this earthly body now by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's the key to not only salvation, but that's also the key then to understanding how to live victoriously in Christ in this life. So we go back to our drawing, and what we discover is now, not only did I die with Christ, but in resurrection, I now discover that Christ in this life lives with me. 
And so it's Christ's presence in this mess of life that gives me the capacity to please God. Now notice I drew the arrow over the law because in Christ, Christ fulfilled the law for us. So I don't have to go fulfill the law. Now, because of God's grace, though, I can trust in Christ to give me the strength to do that. Another way to think about that is to simply say, here's what's happened in my life. I'm still Dale. I still struggle at times with sin in my life. But God's done a wonderful thing. He has placed, no, not Superman in my life, but he's placed the Spirit in my life. And to the degree that I trust the presence of the Holy Spirit, to that degree, I know victory in my life. So that's what we've been talking about. May look sound complicated, but it really isn't. It's a matter of being aware of God's presence in my life and then letting him be in control of my life. So you say, well, how does that happen? How, how can I live in that victory? And the answer is found in Romans chapter 8. So why don't you turn there with me? Romans chapter 8. And we'll begin looking at verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is in the New Living Translation. And here's what it says. Paul writes, he says, Now, so now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So we drew it, right? I, Christ is in me. I am in him. So now there's no condemnation. The sin can't use the law to condemn me. And because you belong to him, the power of, this is so key here, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. I mean, that's like a huge truth for you and me. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. The law of Moses is perfect. God's law is perfect. But we have a weak sinful nature, so we can't keep it perfectly. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body we sinners have. You saw me draw it out. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be, fully, would be fully satisfied for us who no longer walk or follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Holy Spirit. Now, in Romans chapter 8, Paul will use the name of the Holy Spirit 19 different times. 19 different times. Whenever something's repeated that often, it tells you, pay attention. Something's going on here. There's an important truth here. And that important truth is, I can't live victoriously without the help and the power of the Holy Spirit living in me and also working through me. Now, I want to encourage you to uh, go online and check out the sermon area of our website. And if you'll look up a series that I did in August of 2016, it's called Filled, F-I-L-L-E-D. I gave three messages in that series called Filled in August of 2016 on what it means to live in the fullness of the Spirit. And you'll be tremendously helped by that. I encourage you to listen to it again. It just, it just talks about what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit. And I do a little object lesson in that series that will be very a good reminder and very helpful. What I want to focus on this morning, though, is just one important truth that opens the way for us to want to live for God, follow His will, rather than chasing down our own desires. And that one important truth was right there in Romans chapter 8. We'll look at it again in just a moment. Meanwhile, write this thought down because here it is. 
as a sincere believer in Christ, and I use sincere because not everybody who calls himself a Christian is, but as a sincere believer in Christ, that is, I've really put my faith in him, I am no longer condemned. As a sincere follower of Jesus, I am no longer condemned. In fact, let's just say it all loud together. Would you please? As a sincere believer in Christ, I am no longer condemned. To the degree that you and I understand and embrace that truth is the degree to which we'll know spiritual victory in our lives. And the opposite is also true. To the degree that I don't understand or don't receive or don't live in that truth, I will struggle more and more with temptation and with sin. So what does this mean that I'm not condemned, that somehow God has worked miraculously in my life? Jot down this next thought. One of the keys to experiencing spiritual victory is to remember that no amount of moralizing will ever make me deserving of God's grace. No amount of moralizing is ever going to make me deserving of God's grace. And we've really got to come to terms with what that means. And so let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. Um, Tim Keller in his comments on this passage of Scripture says that the general populace has three levels of thinking. There are a lot of people in our culture who believe that there are not that many evil, really bad people in the world. That, that you know, there's not that many serial killers, maniacal dictators, that, that there just isn't a lot of really, really bad people like Hitler and et cetera around. They also believe that there's not a lot of really, 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 really good people like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham who get hospitals and institutions named after them because they're so good. But in between the, the two, generally speaking, most of us are good people. Now, there's a sense in which I agree with that. Generally speaking, people are, are decent. But there's another sense in which that is not right, that is wrong. There's another sense in which all of us, all of us could say and probably ought to admit we are the vilest, the worst of sinners. That's what Paul called himself. I remember years ago in our first church in a little town called Oak Harbor, Ohio, I met a man and we got to know each other. He started coming to our church and, and loved it until one day he heard me talking about heaven and hell and how people need to come to faith in Christ and he couldn't get over that. He could understand why Hitler may need to come to faith in Christ, but he said, generally, everybody's good. You can't, you can't tell me that God's going to send anybody who's good to hell. And I had to try to explain to him, it doesn't matter how good you are, you'd have to be perfect in order for God to accept you. And that at the core of our beings, we are evil. And, and he got mad at me, and, and I lost the friendship over that. In his mind, all right, in his mind, you can be good enough that you'll be acceptable to God. Now, the reason I bring that up is because all I'm going to guess that most of us, at least at some point in our life, have had that belief till we come to faith in Christ. But even after coming to faith in Christ, it is our nature to continue to think that somehow, and this is the I, the big I, the big self in us, that somehow I can earn or deserve grace. Be honest, I will be, and I'll tell you, I, I've fallen into this trap a few times where I've kind of complained to God and in essence, I've said to God, you know, God, I don't understand why 
you're letting this happen in so-and-so's life or in my life right now. And then I try in a very humble and gentle way to remind God of the sacrifices I've made and how good I try to be. Anybody else know someone like that? Yes, every time you see yourself in the mirror, right? What is that? That's moralizing. Whether we realize it or not, in essence, what I'm saying is, God, aren't you watching? Aren't you keeping track? I mean, aren't I good enough that I deserve a break here? No, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve a break here. Or another way to tell if we're moralizing is, ask yourself, are you judgmental? Are you judgmental toward people or toward groups of people? Do you have negative thoughts toward them? Do you put them down in your mind? Do you think less of them? Do you think they're deserving of less or deserving of uh, punishment or deserving of being treated a certain way? That's moralizing. Whether you realize it or not, it's immoral, but it's a form of moralizing because in essence what I'm saying is I can judge them. I can look down on them because there must be something about me that's better than them. Therefore, if I think there's something better about me than them, that must qualify me to have a better stance before God than them. So we, we have a tendency to always kind of drag that in with us. And I'm just trying to say you gotta, you got to find a way of getting rid of that kind of thinking. Realizing that you and I, we are the worst of sinners. That deserve to be condemned. That, that deserve to be judged. But watch this. When you become and I become a follower of Jesus, your condemnation as a sinner is taken away. So we come right back again to this truth. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. He doesn't say there's no longer any condemnation. He says, there is like no condemnation at all. Period. Removed. Gone. No past condemnation, no present condemnation, no future condemnation. It's gone. It's been removed. All right? And that's how he looks at you, and that's how he looks at me. And I can't tell you how significant and important that is. So on the one hand, I've got to walk through life realizing I'm the worst of sinners who's received this freedom, who's no longer condemned, and rejoice in that. On the other hand, i got to walk through life and realize that I am perfectly loved by God. And I'm truly free in Christ. And celebrate that and, and rejoice in what he has done for me. But see, we all have a habit of of getting into a bad cycle, even as Christians. So now we go back and forth. Here we go again. Ready? Maybe on your way in today, as you were driving, gripping the steering wheel, and all of a sudden an 18-wheeler rolled right by you. And, you know, they blew up all that snow. You couldn't even see where you're going. And they had the nerve to pull right in front of you and hit their brakes, which caused you to kind of swerve back and forth. And you yelled out something that... You would never yell out in church. Or you did something you would never do in church. And all of a sudden, you just felt so guilty for it. <gasps> I feel condemned for this. And you prayed and said, God, please forgive me for what I just said and did. Whew. I'm out of condemnation now. Then maybe you came to church and somebody was sitting in your favorite seat. Or you got really ticked off that 
Cal closed off the balcony. I don't know why he does that. But he closed off the balcony. You're like, I always sit in the balcony. I sit right there. I can't believe I have to sit here. You have some naughty thoughts go through your mind. Toward Kyle. Because I think it should be open right now. No, I'm just kidding. All right? All right? So you have some naughty thoughts. You're like, God, forgive me. I shouldn't think like that, especially in the church. I'm sorry. Whew, you feel all better now, right? And we live like that because none of us are perfect. So what happens is we sin. We go, oh, I'm under condemnation. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'm out of condemnation. I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. That's not truth. That's not what, that's not the reality. Once you have sincerely accepted Christ, you will never be under condemnation again. Never, ever, ever. That's gone so you can live in freedom. You say, well, what do you do with something like 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I mean, it sounds like I, I got to confess my sins all the time so I'm not being condemned by God. But that's misreading the text. If we confess our sins, he is. He already is faithful and he already is just. He took out our condemnation on his son. He punished his son for us. So the stage is set that when I do sin, I'll be forgiven by God's grace. I'm not being saved again by his grace, but the relationship is being restored. Let me give you a little story that may help with that. At least it helps me as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture. Imagine you have a child at home, and you say to your child over and over again, please don't climb up on the, count on the counter. Because you climb up on there, you might fall off and get hurt or break something up there. Stay off it. You've told them a hundred times. But on this particular day, you're in the living room, they're in the kitchen, they see the counter, and they decide it is time to put their climbing skills to work. They climb up on the counter and happen to accidentally knock over your favorite vase or vase, however you want to say it. And it falls over and it hits the ceramic floor and shatters in a hundred pieces. Immediately they crawl off the counter and call their attorney. <laughs> their attorney drives over right away, meets them in the kitchen. They get the paperwork out and a pen and they walk into the living room and your son says to you or your daughter, it doesn't matter, mommy or grandma, I just broke your favorite vase. I am so sorry. I've got my attorney here and the papers are drawn up. Will you take me back into the family? Will you make me legally your son again? Now your kid's not going to do that. Why? Because they, not, they never stop being your child. So there's no need to get grafted back in the family again. It's just like when you and I sin, there's no need for me to get saved. You don't have to join God's family again. I didn't fall out of the family. But I do need to see, receive forgiveness because when that child breaks that vase and comes in, you want them to say they're sorry to you, right? Because you want the relationship healed again. But they don't stop being your son. Same thing with God. We don't stop being his child, but our fellowship can get stretched. And God says, you know, I chastise those whom I love. So if you're naughty and you keep on being naughty, you know, I'm going to do what it takes to bring you back because I know how dangerous and cruel the world will be. And I want you back in relationship with me. And the way God does that is he reminds us that we're welcome back into his presence because there's no condemnation toward us. You know, I discovered this week something I never realized before. And that is one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit 
is found at the very end of Romans chapter 8. Look what it says. Verse 38. And I am convinced, says Paul, that nothing could ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below indeed. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know what the primary, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is? To convince us that God loves us. To convince us that God loves us. That's pretty big, isn't it? To convince us that we're no longer condemned in Christ. It's one of his primary ministries. We oftentimes think it's to guilt us, to shame us, to point out what's wrong in our life. His primary ministry is to remind us that God loves us. And someone after the last service was so helpful. They came up to me and they made a comment. I said, can I, I'm just going to share this with you, the thought, because it's true. Not only do I need to be convinced that God no longer condemns me, but listen carefully. So oftentimes there are people who show up in my life who condemn me, who remind me of my shortcomings and my failures. And sometimes when a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend or a coworker or somebody else comes along and points the finger and reminds us of the failure we've been, we take it as though God is saying it. You got you to separate the two. That's a human, that's a human issue. That's, that's their problem. They're not my God. I'm not going to worship them. I'm not going to, they're not going to decide my fate and my future. And though they may want to remind me that I'm condemned, I have a God in heaven who says, no, you are not condemned. So if you've got somebody like that in your life, stop listening to them. You're no longer condemned. Stop listening to the voice in the past. You're no longer condemned. I love that story in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to a crowd and the religious teachers drag out this woman caught in the middle of adultery. They must have pulled her right out of the bed and brought her out in front of Jesus in the crowd. And, he said, and they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I always wonder where the man was. Probably a setup. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? I just hope this is on DVD in heaven or whatever. It just says that Jesus bent over and started writing something in the dirt. And everybody wants to know what he wrote. None of us know, so why try to guess? He is writing something in the dirt. And finally he stands up and he looks at these guys and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Those who are without sin... Go ahead and cast the first stone. And there's silence, I imagine. And suddenly you hear the stones just kind of thunk, hitting the ground. They all drop their stones. They all walk away. Why? Because none of them, none of them are without sin. Even the Pharisees know they're not without sin. And then Jesus goes down. He starts drawing in the dirt again, writing something. And then all of a sudden he stands up and all that's left is he and the adulteress. And Jesus speaks to her and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? 
No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. What a day, huh? Isn't it interesting? He says, I don't condemn you. Now you have the freedom to go and not sin. We need to hear the same thing from God. I don't condemn you. I never will condemn you. Now live in the freedom of my love and my grace. Remember, temptation always has behind it this idea that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't have our good in mind, that God can't be trusted, and we ought to fulfill what's going to feel good. Only to the degree that I know that God does love me, that God can't be trusted, that God gave everything for me. Do I find enough security to say, God, I know you love me. I know my flesh wants to go that direction, but God, because I know you love me so much, you're the lover of my soul, I'm not going to go chasing those things. Maybe you've heard of the singing group, the Winans, BBCC Winan singers, and, uh, you know, they, they do a very nice job. Well, Marvin Simon, who's an older uh, brother, uh, tells a story on his family. I assume he got permission to tell the story. But Marvin Simon says, you know, when we were all growing up and, and we were kids at home, he said, my brother Carvin, so interesting family names, Marvin and Carvin, he said, uh, we found B.B., our little brother, and we wanted to see him cry. Isn't that terrible? Can't imagine any sibling here ever wanting to do that. So he said, we told, we told B.B., uh, you know, you're not one of us. Mommy and Daddy found you under a bush. And B.B. must have been young enough that he believed it because he went running to his daddy and said, Daddy, Daddy, I, I don't find out. Marvin told me that I'm not one of you. I was born under a bush. And his dad looked at him and said, B.B., listen to me. You're my beloved son. I've known you ever since you were born. And Marvin says he gave me and Carvin a whooping for doing that. But he said it was okay. We, it was worth the whooping to see B.B. cry. <laughs> Several weeks later, they saw B.B. and they couldn't help themselves. And they said, you know, B.B., you're not one of us. You were left on the porch and you were crying so loud and making so much noise that mom and dad, they decided to take you in. And he went running to his daddy. And, oh, daddy, I left on the porch and I was crying. You took me in. And his daddy says, stop it, B.B. Listen to me. You're my beloved son. I've known you since you were born. And Marvin and his brother Carvin got another whooping. Well, a couple of months went by, and they saw B.B. again and couldn't help themselves. They said to B.B., you know, you're not one of us. Mom and Dad are about to give you away. He went running to his daddy. He said, oh, Daddy, I just marveling because you're going to give me away. Oh, I'm not one of you. And his dad looked at me and said, B.B., listen to me. You're my beloved son. I've known you since you were born. But if you come back and do this again, I'm not going to whoop your brothers. I'm going to whoop you for forgetting how much I love you. And then Marvin Winans goes on and he says, you know, the thing that breaks God's heart more than anything else is when we forget just how much he loves us. Now, God is not going to whoop you if you forget how much he loves you. But listen carefully, sin is going to whoop you. And the devil will whoop you when you forget how much God loves you. Because he's always, always working that angle. 
I mean, what else could cause us to want to chase our desires and sin against God than to somehow think in our minds that God really doesn't love us? No matter what you do, if you're a child of God, God loves you. And he forgives you. If you're not a child of God, why would you not want to live and accept that kind of love? Yesterday was a beautiful day, wasn't it? Here in Minnesota, if you're watching online from another part of the country, yesterday was blue sky, cold, but sun was great. And on days like that, I love to sit on our, in our back room, you know, bank of windows there, and the sun comes pouring through, and I just love to sit there in the sun and feel the warmth. That's kind of like God, isn't it? God's inviting us to sit in the warmth of his love, to sit in the spotlight of his love, to just let him love us and rejoice in being loved by him. Doesn't get any better than that. Today's a different day in Minnesota. I'm told the sun is still shining, but there's a lot of clouds in the way. And I just have to believe by faith the sun is out there shining away. Otherwise, why would it be daylight out? But I just know it's there in the sky. It's in the same place it was yesterday, shining with the same vigor as yesterday. It's just that all the cloud and the snow is in the way. I can still go to my back windows. I can sit there, and I can by faith know the sun is shining, and by faith bask in its warmth. Same thing happens to you and me in our lives. Stuff happens in our lives. Clouds get in the way. Suffering, discouragement, people, situations. But the sun is still there. God is still there. The light is still shining. And it's in those moments that I have to move beyond the tangible and by faith believe that the love of God is as strong today as it was yesterday. 